I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. And joining me today is author and physician Norman Rosenthal, MD. His uh, new book is Poetry Rx, How 50 Inspiring Poems Can Heal and Bring Joy to Your Life. Many people find poetry delightful, interesting, and thought-provoking. According to author Norman E. Rosenthal, MD, poetry can also have the power to soothe, inspire, comfort, and yes, even heal. In addition, poetry can act as a lens through which we can gaze into the parallel processes of the mind and brain and experience treasures that might otherwise be entirely hidden. He shares 50 inspiring poems designed to heal as well as bring joy into your life. Dr. Rosenthal is the world renowned is a world-renowned psychiatrist or the world-renowned psychiatrist, researcher and New York Times best-selling author who first described seasonal affective disorder and pioneered the use of light therapy as a treatment during his 20 years at the National Institute of Mental Health. His work has been featured on Good Morning America, The Today Show, NPR, and other national media. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Rosenthal. Nice to have you. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. Okay, we're going to be talking about poetry. Poetry is one of those topics that people kind of shy away from. They think of Shakespeare, they think of esoteric kinds of poetry, and it's kind of scary stuff, so they don't want to talk about They Some people don't even attempt to read poetry unless they're forced to in college, right, or in graduate school. So it has a whole new twist when you, in terms of how you see poetry and how it can affect us in a very positive way. It's It's therapeutic rather than taking drugs, I guess, right? Well, you know, it's not either or, but I think if a poem is going to help you and make you feel better, then it's a good thing, regardless of whether you need drugs or not. That's a separate issue. But I think that it is surprising to me, even as a seasoned therapist and psychiatrist, how much many of my clients and patients have derived joy and benefit from uh, these poems, uh, amongst others. And uh, I agree with you, the idea that poetry is difficult, inaccessible. That's what I'm trying to sort of belie in this current uh, book, that, that I've laid out poems that are all relatively short. And even though they, they harbor depths of interest and, uh, you, you know, bear reading again and again, they're very accessible. And that's what I've hoped to show the reader. And and how do you do this? How do you introduce poetry to your patients, for instance? I know I'm quoting Jane Brody, who writes for the New York Times, and she said, I used to believe that poetry did not speak to me, but now I see that I was wrong. And she's referring to you and, and your work. So how do you introduce poetry to your patients? Well, uh, sometimes in the middle of something, uh, for example, maybe a, a wrangle or a, a dispute between maybe a husband and wife or two people who are dating each other, um, and they're all pushed into their corners of, I'm right, you're wrong, etc. I might say, may I read you a short poem? And they'll look at me like I've gone crazy. And they say, yeah, sure, because they're curious. And curiosity is a wonderful thing because it, it leads you to inquire and ask questions. And then I'll, I'll read them maybe a small uh, poem uh, by the famous 
Persian poet Rumi, which goes out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing. There is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. And they'll sort of, you know, it's a, it's a little strange. You're, you're saying there's a field and we'll lie down in the grass. And, and I say, you know, that's trying to say right and wrong is not really what's important here. What's important here is how two people who loved each other, who decided to get together, maybe get married, are now in such polar opposite positions. It's inviting us to look at it and problem solve together. And there's something about bringing something that's not related exactly to them, but is relevant to them, that gets people thinking. I think when people start to think, then they approach solutions more easily. Yeah. And and as you're describing it, it's it's the feeling, it would seem to me, that they latch on to when, when they're, you know, you take a couple who's fighting over whatever they're fighting over, they just get hooked into, I think, sometimes a lot of cognitive stuff and they really aren't, can't take a look at themselves or their partner and the poetry helps them to do that. There's like this whole, yeah. because they can stand back. Yeah, poetry, it links feelings and thoughts. Some of these poems are deeply feeling, all of them are actually but they also encourage people to think about things in, in novel ways. And I find that very exciting. So what I do in the book is I lay out the poem fresh so that they can read it with fresh eyes. And then I explain a little bit about the poem. And then I give them some takeaway nuggets that come out of that poem, things they can actually use in their daily lives. I know you have a social work background, you want to give people... When I'm, when I'm finished with the session, I like to feel I've given my clients something they can take away and use. So you give them homework to do? No, I just... Uh, I, well, you know, they can, they can do it, but I'm, I'm not that kind of proscriptive about it. But, it, you know, if you take this little poem that I've given you, the points that I make is... Um, in a conflict with someone important to you, decide on your priority. Is it more important to be right or to get along? Often you can't have both at the same time. Then, then I um, say something that, that really is part of the prayer of St. Francis. I say, try first to understand, then to be understood. You know, people are often saying, understand where I'm coming from. Yeah, that's good. You should understand where the other person's coming from. But first, set, lead by example. Try to understand. And then once there's harmony between you and the other person, there'll be time to talk about basic principles on which you can both agree and how to stick to them. And, uh, you know, if there's been bad blood between people, sometimes a formal process of reconciliation can actually be helpful. So these are the little nuggets that stem from that little poem that I shared with you. So what I want is that my book not only bring joy and intellectual excitement to people, but actually give them some tools that they can use in their daily lives. So give us some background on how you came to adopt this approach, because it's very unique. I mean, it is something that uh, until 
actually reading your book and talking to you, I had never heard of, and I'm sure there are many other people who haven't. And uh, it's a, a very, very unique approach. How did you, I guess, how, did, what, how start from the beginning. When did you realize that poetry would have this effect on your patients? And it, and, yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's always resonated with me. I've always felt poetry and uh, have actually benefited from some poems myself, but I never actually thought of it as a therapy or as part of a therapy until one night a friend called me, a very educated, cultured person called me to tell me that he'd lost somebody very dear to him. And I was trying to be helpful and console uh, but, you know, there's so many hackneyed ways of saying, oh, I'm sorry for your loss, or time heals all wounds. And they've been so overused that they don't carry much force anymore. And I thought, how could I say something to him that would be different, that would be helpful? And I said, well, you know, loss is like an art form. You know, there's an art to losing. And I heard a silence on the other side of the phone, and he said, have you read that poem? I said, what poem? And he, then he reads to me the poem One Art by Elizabeth Bishop, which talks about the art of losing. And it's a beautiful poem. I don't know if we have time to read it. It's not very long, but it's very lovely. And when he was done reading that poem, I could hear his mood lifting, and I felt elated or at least uh, a sense of relief come over me. And I thought, wow, is this amazing that a poem can induce a, a difference, a change in how you feel, just like what you were saying. And then I started looking for other poems that could do this. I started asking my patients, and they brought me poems. One brought me this, one brought me that, this one helps people who are getting older and are having a hard time with it. This one helps people who, uh, you know, are in this or that situation. They've lost hope. It's a wonderful poem that has really resonated with so many of my readers. Uh, if I may read it, it's an Emily Dickinson poem about hope. It's called Hope is the Thing with Feathers that Perches in the Soul and sings the tune without the words, and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. I feel hope when I read that, and so do many of my readers and my clients. So for all kinds of circumstances that life brings us, there's a poem for almost everything you can imagine. Well, I have so I'm going to, now that it's the holiday season and people during the holiday season tend to get depressed, which is really not the purpose of the holidays, but it seems that that's what happens. There's people struggling with all kinds of issues, I think, which get exacerbated during the holiday season. So in the context, and I could, it's sort of, this is a personal, I guess, example, um, you know, with COVID and planning holidays. Uh, I know in my own family, I have a big family, children, 
adults, grandparents, those who uh, the children are not vaccinated, the adults are. Uh, there's a whole lots of issues have come up about what to do and and um, who's going to be there and who won't be there if not everybody's vaccinated. Uh, and obviously, this is not just unique to my family, but I I see this. These are issues that are um, uh, that um, in the context of of uh, what we're dealing with in terms of the uh, virus. Absolutely. You know, what you raise is such a multifactorial problem. And multifactorial is just a fancy way of saying it's hard to get your hands around it because there's separation, there's loneliness, there's deprivation, there's fear. A little bit better now that there are vaccines and even some medicines coming along. But it's still a nasty illness and now it now it seems to be declining and now all of a sudden it's spreading and I think there's a kind of a fear of this illness that has really been unique perhaps since the polio epidemic of the 1950s. I remember that. But that was a time when there was a fear of a virus and here again we've got a fear, it inhibits people and then all of a sudden they decide the heck with it, they're not going to they're not going to stay home. They're going to go to the ball game. They're going to go here or there. And then they get sick, some of them, and that can be very dangerous. So it's a very trying time. And I don't think there's one solution. I think there are many solutions which, if you couple them together, can create the semblance of a normal life. Wearing masks, the wonders of the Internet that communications that connect us that five or ten years ago would not have been necessarily available. And then, you know, reaching out. You know, reach out to other people. You know, we want to be reached out to, but we can reach out as well. And some gatherings are okay. I'm grateful, for example, that my grandsons age 11 and 6 have been vaccinated, so that's very uh, comforting to everybody, especially we don't want the little folks to get ill. And so slowly, slowly we're making progress, but in the meanwhile, we need all the help we can get. And uh, I guess that what's really given me a lot of joy hearing about the book is people who say, I've got it in my, on my nightstand. I pick it up, I read a poem, it makes me feel better. You don't have to go from beginning to end. It's written in a modular way so that people can just sample whatever it is that seems to be relevant to them at that particular moment. What poems would be relevant, given the scenario I just gave you and the conflict among family members about what to do and who should attend the Thanksgiving dinner? Um, well, let me talk about one poem which addresses a specific problem. Uh, one thing about the holidays is that some people are not with us. Maybe they're people who've passed away. Maybe people who've died of COVID or anything, and they're not there at the table, and we feel they're lost bitterly. And there's a very uplifting poem. It's the last poem in the collection that was originally written by a Baltimore housewife on a brown paper shopping bag to comfort the a guest, a house guest, whose mother was dying far away and she couldn't get to her. It was in the, in the Second World War. Here it is. It's, 
Elizabeth, Mary Elizabeth Fry, do not stand at my grave and weep. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I'm not there. I do not sleep. I'm a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the sunlight on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. When you awaken in the morning's hush, I am the swift, uplifting rush of quiet birds in circled flight. I am the soft stars that shine at night. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I am not there. I did not die. So we have our memories. We have uh, all the things that we recall about these wonderful people who, you know, aren't there. Yeah. And so that's, a, that's just one poem. That's but one poem, and that's I mean, and dealing with loss. I think our yeah. particular issue and others that I've discussed um, with uh, friends is not the loss, but there's so many people with conflicting ideas about how the we're talking about conflict. You know, you, in the beginning of mm-hmm. the interview, you were talking about a, a couple in conflict. This is families in conflict, and that and there are lots of people. And they have different ideas about what's safe and what's not safe and how to get together. So that's my question. What poems would address that? Not so much the loss of who isn't there. It's like dealing with who is here. (laughs) And there are lots of them. Right, right. You know, um, I would say the poem I read before, Beyond right, Right Doing and Wrong Doing, There is a Field. I'll meet you there. Let's meet each other in a field where we have very different feelings. Is it okay or isn't it okay? I'll give you an example. A friend of mine, his daughter, had a wedding. It was 170 people in a marquee. And I'd accepted the invitation. And when the time got close, I checked it out with my medical friends and they thought it was not a good idea. People drink, they take off masks, they talk loud, germs get spread, super spreader events occur. And I felt very badly because this was a really great friend and I was, as it were, reneging on an acceptance. And I called him up and um, he said, you know, I understand. Um, A lot of people feel that way. So he gave me the grace of relieving my feelings of guilt. And I think that is a sort of lesson uh, right there. And that is that we're coming, all coming from different places. If you're worried about the virus, but I'm not, I need to respect that. Um, If I am only comfortable if we're both wearing masks, then we need to wear masks. We need to meet each other in a common place because there are differences of opinion. But I don't really understand why it has to become a conflict. Just because you think something's safe and I don't, why shouldn't people disagree? We're not all clones of one another. And um, I think that there's such polarization in the country right now where people are so intolerant of others who disagree with them that I think that's really the problem. It's not a question of who's right. It's a question of how can we meet each other in the middle, in the field. 
And that's a good note to end on. We only have about a minute left. So um, I want to repeat, your book is Poetry Rx, How 50 Inspiring Poems Can Heal and Bring Joy to Your Life. And uh, Dr. Uh, Rosenthal is Dr. Norman E. Rosenthal is the author, and he's read a couple of those poems for us today, but there are 50 of them, so um, recommend the book. And thanks so much for being on the show today. Oh, thank you. I always love being on your show. Thank you so much, and happy holidays to you. Yes, you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 